Welcome to IT Origins, an interview series from Gestalt IT. I'm your inquisitor, Rich Straffolino. Each Thursday, we post new interviews from IT engineers, entrepreneurs, and executives to find out how they got started on their path to IT. This week, I had the privilege to talk to data architect and space enthusiast, Karen Lopez. A quick production note, for some reason, Skype decided to make it sound like I was recording in a cathedral in space. So my audio is a little funky. Luckily, you're not here for me, and Karen sounds great. So Karen, what's your IT origin story? How long have you been in the field, and how'd you get your start? <laughs> That's a great question to start with. Um, well, so officially I tell people I've been in the field for 20 plus years, but it's actually more than 30 years. I just stopped counting at 20. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of IT people who got into it via, you know, a degree in computing and then going into it. But I found that in my specialization in the data world, there's a significant percentage of people who didn't do that. Um, but I'm one that did. So I studied data and database systems and information systems at Purdue. And then right after that, went into defense consulting, working on building system engineering systems. And then, so in that time, what's been the biggest change kind of in the data world? I mean, that seems like an impossible question, uh, given that everything is data centric now, or we like to claim it is. Uh, but can you can you give me some sense of that? Um, well, so one of the interesting things is, is that while I was in university, um, the relational database world was brand new um, and so new that Ted Codd was writing his papers and scoring the vendors who were producing new relational database systems and giving them a score of one out of 10 or zero out of 10. <laughs> one vendor got two or something like that. Um, so that was a big change then that that the uh, the industry, like the enterprise industry, was trying to wade through, and as were vendors. Um, and then we fast forward to now, and I've equated sort of the NoSQL movement or the PostSQL movement as being a same sort of shift in database technology. So I won't say that, you know, that NoSQL is the shift. The real shift is, you know, it, it took decades, even though there were lots of other database formats that came and that were successful. Now that I've been through two of these very large changes, I would say that um, data practices have stayed somewhat stable. It's the technology and sort of the how we persist the data that's had the most innovation um, so I guess I'm answering kind of the opposite question. Data has stayed the same, like the philosophy of data has stayed primarily the same, and it's the sort of advent of cloud and NoSQL that has changed how we persist it. In, in terms of where we are with NoSQL, is that at the same level uh, when you first started with uh, relational databases in terms of being at that like one to two le out of 10 level? <laughs> well, so it, this, that one's harder to say because when we went to relational technologies, I mean, Dr. Codd wrote his paper and, you know, of these new systems and that started, you know, that was a theory that, and, and a, a sort of a new model for storing data. Um, whereas NoSQL isn't really a thing. It's just, 
you know, originally started as not relational. That was why they called it NoSQL or NoSQL, I should even say. But, um, you know, NoSQL, just like big data, it's not really one thing. I What I think is that the big revelation was I believe that NoSQL became popular because it came about at about the same time as cloud technologies as well as open source software being a mainstream enterprise ready set of technologies. I think all that came together, I call it the perfect storm of database systems, uh, new database models plus cloud plus open source that allowed us to get where we are now. And I noticed you're, you're careful to say no SQL. Is there a particular significance behind it? Yeah, it, it, so, um, and this has also changed through the decades as well. But I find that in, in today's world, most people um, take that pronunciation of SQL and associate with Microsoft and SQL Server. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then SQL is primarily used for the non-Microsoft technologies. Not everyone follows that. Because I work with a lot of the Microsoft data platform stuff, I tend to say SQL a lot and then get caught up in it. But even when you go to the vendors that have the letters SQL in their product, I've tried to nail them down. Do you have an official statement on that? And almost everyone has said, yeah, we don't care. We just want you to talk about our product. (laughs) There's no bad publicity, right? All right. So current worst trend in IT right now. Man. Uh, does it count as a trend if I say data breaches? You're, you're allowed to, yes. We, we, we've, I think net neutrality has also, or like the lack of net neutrality or the death of net neutrality has been considered the worst. So we, we can allow data breaches. Okay. So, yeah, I, I should go with net neutrality as well. <laughs> um, but I'm much more fearful and worried about data breaches. I mean, right now in the news today, there's the... Uh, you know, the Panera Bread story that's been just going crazy this week about, you know, researchers found, like, to call it a vulnerability is just silly because it was just wide open data, most of it unencrypted, hanging out on a, a web pa- a web accessible page. Um, and they were, the story is that they were told eight months ago oh, and geez. nothing was done until uh, Krebs got involved. And even then, this retailer um, is still harassing the researchers and treating people with disrespect. And um, there's some other news that I haven't quite verified that allegedly the security officer also used to work for Experian. So let's say not a good track record. (laughs) Say the least, yeah. (laughs) Say the least. But what really worries me is... Like, I guess we as an industry, it it doesn't seem to matter, especially in North America, um, or maybe I should say especially in the U.S., that these reports of vulnerabilities aren't being treated as serious issues. And I'm not for public disclosure of vulnerabilities until there's been notification. I mean, I am, I think vulnerabilities should be kept private until some until you can notify the data stewards the people who are holding on to that data so that people don't exploit it as much but finding that line of how long do you wait before you out people and and it's just people are collecting data and 
that I've had IT people tell me it's not my job to care about it. And I think it is. I think it's every I think it's every person's in the organization's job to care about protecting the data. But I I'm so confident that it's every IT person's job. Well, what's interesting about, you know, what, I, what I've seen from the, you know, this, just this Panera news that just came out today, even going into, I thought it was very interesting with the whole Cambridge Analytica story. I think it was Vice that was, was refusing to call it a data breach versus, you know, data disclosure or data selling or something like that. I, and I think these all fall under the rubric of data exposure versus, a, you know, a breach makes it sound like, you know, there's some hacker with numbers displayed across their face from an old CRT or something with a hoodie, you know, but it, it's an unencrypted bucket or something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I do consider the Panera thing a data breach. I don't consider the sort of Facebook um, CA thing as uh, as a breach. It was, I, I mean, I guess as a data, you know, as someone who probably had my data sold that way, I feel that my data privacy has been breached. But, you know, from a technical point of view, it was literally data sharing. And I think one of the things that U.S. organizations are struggling with is that there's no, you know, single data privacy, data protection legislation like other countries have, like in Canada where I live. But I don't know if Canada's data protection laws would have protected against that whole use of the data. And likely we all said, yeah, this is fine. We agree to this because no one reads the um, user acceptance words anymore. Yeah, well, uh, you know, when they're, some of them are, what, 60, 100 pages or something like that. Famously, Apple's is impossible to read. All right, so let's uh, maybe turn away from the worst trends. And what, what do you think is the best trend right now in IT? Mm-hmm. Um. Gosh, everything has such buzzwords now. I don't know how to phrase it. (laughs) I mean, for me, what's been interesting and what I've been playing with mostly is, um, you know, the whole cloud technologies thing. And and I don't just I maybe I should rephrase that as software as a service or infrastructure as a service. Um, And so even though most almost all those are in the cloud or at least on the Internet, for me, it's been just have that accessibility of to be able to easily get my hands on technology that I would have put off in the past because I would have had to have downloaded an installer, which might have meant having to talk to a salesperson um, to get a trial or to wait several days while I'm pre-qualified or have to justify that um, to be able to just play with a service by using credits or using my credit card. Um, for me personally, it's been that, and I, I've always wondered, you know, how that is for enterprise customers when they want to do fast proof of concepts, proofs of concept. Um, yeah. So software and infrastructure as a service that has been mind blowing for me. Well, it's, it's very interesting because I, I know in some discussions we've had with companies that, that accessibility has caused the, you know, the problem of shadow IT, I guess is the buzzword around it, where it is so easy that someone in the application team can just take the company credit card, spin up some, you know, uh, some servers on AWS, and all of a sudden no one knows. Well, that leads to a whole other data problem, you know, on top of that of not knowing where the data is. That's the trade-off, right? Um, But, you know, I used to explain to my developers that 
when I started 30 some years ago, how did you learn DB2 or Oracle? I mean, you couldn't, there was no internet. There was no, you couldn't download it and run it on some desktop that you had in your home. I mean, you had virtually no accessibility to technology unless you worked for a technology vendor or you worked at a company where you were, you know, given that authorization to to evaluate or play with any technology. So I get that trade-off, but I think I think in the overall scheme of things, where we are is for the good. And what we really need is better governance for implementing systems and moving data around. And I know that's an anti-agile, anti-scrum. <laughs> process, but I think that's the difference between being an enterprise organization or a software vendor organization or a startup. Yeah, I think a lot of those issues come down to the the newness of everything and maybe not realizing that there are best practices beyond just grabbing the company credit card for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, so kind of backing up a little bit, um, I'm just in some of your approaches to organization, kind of productivity. Um, do you have a particular way that you like to work? Um, any kind of, you know, must-use apps that you use uh, on a daily basis? I just kind of want to dig into process a little bit here. Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, so many of my projects are remote teams, so people across several time zones and everything. So, I mean, I'm not going to say anything that's going to be revolutionary here, but collaboration environments, I think because I'm a project manager and I'm also, I specialize in troubled projects, which means that um, there's a lot of stress. There hasn't been collaboration. There are people who aren't working together anymore or maybe never did who are now being forced to work together. I mean, it's things like Skype and GoToMeeting and having an, you know, having that access to work with people on a regular basis in something other than email. So maybe my number one recommendation is that too many people try to do work via email, sending documents around. And this is probably my data bit. You know, I want to share a document. I don't want to send it around and have people updating the wrong version. Um, you know, and maybe that means that GitHub has been a, a great productivity tool uh, now that it's it's being used for things other than code, for for documents, for presentations, for um, you know PowerPoint decks, whatever it is, um, between that and a shared to do list or a shared project tracking thing, whatever project task list that one uses, you know the key word to all of this is shared for getting stuff done. All right, and any book recommendations out there for other IT pros? And uh, what are you reading right now? <laughs> That's a um, well. So my my number one recommended book for all people of the world is a book by Gerald Weinberg or Jerry Weinberg called Secrets of Consulting. But it's not a consulting book really because it's subtitled something like The Art of Giving and Receiving Advice, and it's told in a bunch of parables. Um, that explain a concept and they're literally stories with characters and they have names like the orange juice test and um, the laws of truth. And it, it's really a great sort of primer on how to interact with people. There's a little bit about interacting with clients, but you could translate clients into family members or coworkers easily on that. 
That's my number one recommended book for everybody um, because it talks about uh, one of the things that Gerald Weinberg writes about is everything's always a people problem, not from a blame point of view, but you're going to trace the problem back to a person in order to figure out how to fix the problem or to get the people to fix the problem, even if they weren't the cause of it. Um, so every problem is a people problem. And if we come into challenges with that sort of mindset, we realize that, you know, maintaining relationships with people doesn't mean you have to like every be friends with everyone, but treating people with respect and having a, a information sharing and collaborative mindset is really important. And then, you know, for data books, um, I'm into data modeling. So I have a, a recommended data modeling of a book that has a blazing title of Data Modeling Essentials by Graham Simpson and Graham Witt. Um, And that helps people understand the nature of data. All right, and first computer you ever owned? First computer I ever owned. I'm sure it was some compact desktop. It probably cost $4,000. I don't remember the config. I remember I bought it because it was being offered by one of my clients to their employees to encourage employees to have home computers, which was really rare at that time. And it was, um, and the company had negotiated for their, I think they have something like 10,000 employees. They had negotiated this buying program where it was a little bit more affordable and came with all the right accessories and had the same desktop productivity software that the company used because they wanted uh, their employees to, to get used to using that um, that desktop software. And I thought that was kind of a brilliant thing. It didn't cost the company any money because they just negotiated based on their office purchases of hardware. And it, you know, helped the company build up uh, computer literacy skills amongst all their workers. Um, But I have to say the first computer I used on a regular basis was, of course, a TRS-80, Um, because a friend of mine's brother had it because pretty much at that time you had to be a boy to be allowed to have a computer, I think. Um, But I got to play with that. And then a friend of mine in high school, he he had one of those. And so I got to play it. My high school had no computing devices because I'm old. What was the, (laughs) what was the first, I'm always curious about this. What was the first kind of like, whoa, uh, moment, like in terms of an application that you used that, I, I don't know, either convinced you that, hey, this PC thing's catching on or kind of changed your perspective on, on what computing could do? Oh, so it's probably, a question. Pre, well, that's probably pre PC days, right? See, mm-hmm. I'm experienced. So, <laughs> um, I had used these, I had used those, the TRS 80s before. Um, but my mom, she's brilliant. She sent me during the summer to take a programming class at the local university. Um, and so that was probably some mid range computer. I wouldn't have known as a high school student, um, what it was for sure. But I remember we learned programming and, um, we had to uh, build a system actually in programming that did inventory control and accounting, which is all really, really boring stuff for me. Um, everyone else was learning programming by building interactive games or something like that. 
uh, most people, most of the high school students that I knew that got outside programming courses, they were making what was the equivalent of a chat bot always, right? Mm -hmm. Not quite as smart, (laughs) a bunch (laughs) of if statements. But um, I think that was the mind-blowing thing, that computers weren't just something that kept track of stuff but that you had to focus on human interaction. I think I was really lucky that the instructor I had at that university um, really talked a lot about how do you make technology work for the people, not the other way around. And that was what made me decide that it wasn't just sitting around typing and the logic of programming, but that there was a design factor to it. All right. And what are you doing, Karen, when you're not working in IT or data? <laughs> I've heard that people have time like that. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm a, a wannabe runner, which means I run and not enough so that it's always painful. Um, but my real sort of hobby slash um, uh, obsession is space and space exploration. So I participate and with space agencies around the world, either doing social media coverage or influencing, or uh, and I'm also a NASA data knot, which means there are groups of people, there are classes, intake classes every six months, and I'm a mentor to the program now, um, where people either learn to code or lately they've been very experienced people that are joining uh, these intakes and They are people who work with NASA Open Data to help NASA have another set of eyes or to think through problems using things like data science or uh, data visualization or data inventory or metadata programs uh, to help NASA think about other ways they might work with or derive value from their data. That is like the coolest uh, outside of work uh, thing I've ever heard. That's really awesome. Yeah, and it's perfect for me because I have this space exploration passion and a data passion. It's just perfect. All right. And how do you caffeine if you do? <laughs> if I do. Constantly. <laughs> uh, so coffee's my thing. And actually, I was just looking this week for a siphon uh, coffee maker. And um, I have to decide whether... I would just break it in the first couple of days. So that's, I like trying all kinds of different things. And there was a discussion going on Twitter today because, uh, or this week, because I was looking at those. Um, I normally French press my daily, my desk coffee, I call it, which is mostly medicinal. That's so I can make it extra strong. But I use an AeroPress to make a cup of coffee while I'm waiting for my French press coffee to be ready. And have you ever, uh, do you have a lot of experience with siphon coffee? I, those, those are the ones that look like a, like a chemistry titration set, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't. So a friend of mine, um, he makes, um, he makes his, his own concentrated vacuum coffee and his apartment looks like a meth lab <laughs> because it's for bulk scale. And I actually, and he makes the super concentrated um, coffee that you're supposed to dilute down with other fluids, and I don't. <laughs> and he has all these names like Death Wish, like 
Death by Caffeine. I can't remember now. I should be able to plug his stuff. Um, but it's always intrigued me that I want one. And most of them that you can find, they have an alcohol burner underneath. Um, but that just sounds, one, again, unsafe for me. And um, I want one that I can use on my stovetop so that I don't know. Because I would run out of, I, I would probably spend more buying the alcohol burners than just the electricity. But I've heard great things about it. And then I've tried my friend's products and they're wonderful. That's what I love about coffee is that no matter how much you get into it, there's still an entire world out there that makes you feel bad about how you're preparing your coffee. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really bad because I'm so addicted to it. And I think also because I travel a lot and keep weird hours. That's why I'm, you know, it really is my desk coffee, as I call it. Like right now it's sitting on a, uh, a warmer and I will heat it up several times, which, you know, no real coffee snob would ever do. Um, but I also enjoy a very well-prepared coffee, like, um, you know, where people do it right. So I enjoy both. The only thing that's worse is airline or hotel coffee that's free. I don't know. I don't, I don't, like, if you're, if you're getting on a plane at, like, 4 a.m., I'll still take the, uh, you know, the boiling hot uh, a cup of bean-flavored water. Uh, yes, if I need to. Even, even though they tell you don't drink that, water <laughs> <laughs> on planes is awful, and they don't get it hot enough to take care of anything. Yes, I will. But I did learn from traveling. I mean, there are places in the world where they enjoy their coffee, but they enjoy it very little, which means that you might get a quarter of a cup of heavily milk and sugar coffee, um, which does not have enough caffeine. So I learned. To I travel with caffeine pills just in case because there's nothing worse than trying to make it through a day jet lagged and not having caffeine. All right, Karen, who would you like to see answer the IT origins questions next? Oh, well, see, I don't know who you've done before. I mean, you know, no big names. Uh, Steve Wozniak. Um, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, we, you know, uh, I, I will take repeats. It doesn't matter. We just want to know who you are interested in hearing from. I can then plug the episode if we've already interviewed them to you. <laughs> Gosh, so many people. Um, now I'm going to try to think of something, something off the regular trail. Okay, so um, there's a great woman that I met at a conference. Her name's Amelia Eastwick. And she's got a great security data protection presentation. And she comes about it from her uh, former military experience and also work that she did at national security agencies in the US. And she's fantastic to talk to. I think you should talk to her if she were willing to do that. Um, but as far as if I wanted to name a celebrity person, just because I like to do that as sure. well, there are astronauts that started in IT. Um, so one I met recently at IBM, he used to be an IBM software engineer and also a product manager. And then he went to space and um now he just speaks at conferences and ha and works at uh, a NASA center at NASA Ames. I think you should try to talk to him. I just want to say, and then he went to space is like the best way to gloss over some a part of someone's career. Like I, I wish at some point that would be said of me, but uh, sadly, exactly, <laughs> exactly, like Willowitz on the Big Bang. 
Exactly. Uh, and finally, best career advice you've received. Okay, I don't know if it counts as career. Always ask for more. So if you're negotiating um, and someone makes you an offer, you should always ask for more. And not just because you'll get more money almost all the time. Like 95, 98% of the time, you'll get more just by asking for more. But because... Um, people respect you more. So this actually comes from The Secret of Consulting from Jerry Weinberg's book. He says, um, the more they pay you, the more they respect you. Totally unfair life observation, but it's true. Words to live by, Karen. Uh, we're going to get out of here. Karen, where can people find more of your stuff if they want to check uh, your workout? Okay. So I blog at datamodel.com, but I tweet a lot and I'm data chick on Twitter and I tweet about space. I tweet about data. I tweet about real life things. And I also tweet about career advice. Excellent. So find her on Twitter at data chick. She's a great follow. Uh, I can verify this personally. So Karen, this has been, this has been a pleasure and thank you so much for being on IT Origins. Thank you.